Jonah chapter 3 is we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning, but again, I'm going to begin reading at the beginning, at the beginning of the book. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are several Bibles in the back. I can't quite see back there, but there might be one or two on the table. And if there aren't any, then there are some under the offering box in the back. There's a, uh, a small number of Bibles back there. Uh, those Bibles, uh, those, uh, those Bibles under the offering box are designed, uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to to use that Bible and read it uh, as often as you can, daily, many times a day, however that works out for you. But then also, um, if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with uh, a person in your life regularly who needs a copy of God's Word, pick that up and, and gift that to them. We'd love to be a resource in that way as well. Okay, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought, or perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not, lay, or let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in, uh, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, for into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out, of, uh, out upon dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. As a pastor elder who preaches on the majority of Sundays, I've come to realize, and probably far too slowly, that not every sermon I preach is a, is a home run, and you might think to yourself to tell me about it. Um, we've sat through <laughs> several that uh, you didn't even get on base. At Buffalo City Church, though, we, we value the, the preaching of God's Word. We value preaching sermons that hopefully connect and open up the Scriptures to you so that you might see what God is communicating through his word to us. But the preaching act is one that is designed by God for this context, for congregational worship, so that we might be edified as the church. And God uses congregational worship centered on the proclamation of his word uh, to his people to shape us, to form us, to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And of course, there are other ways in which that happens. There are other ways in which God shapes us and forms us into the image of Jesus Christ. But this is one that is designed explicitly for us together as people. And so in the last eight years, because of this, uh, for the last eight years, we thought a lot about preaching, the elder team. Um, and, and I know that I've said this a lot to you individually, but even when a sermon feels like, to me, when a sermon feels like to me that it is not effective even in the slightest, um, what happens is uh, many of you then come up to me and say that there is great impact that that, that sermon has had on you. That there is great impact that that sermon has had on you. You think, think to yourself, I, I, there are many times where I, that was terrible. And then someone will say, that was really, really helpful. 
Um, but that's not to point to anything that I've done uh, because it's the message, not the messenger that transforms. It's the message, not the messenger that transforms. You'd be pretty upset if your grandmother wrote you a letter and then the mail carrier opened up that letter and scribbled all over it and then delivered it to you so that it was unreadable. You'd be also pretty annoyed if your mail carrier delivered the letter from your grandma to you, you opened up and read it, and then the mail carrier said, did you like that letter I read to you, or wrote to you? You'd be like, no, you didn't write that. You, my grandmother wrote that. Similarly, you'd be right to be annoyed if I made a mess of a text to push my agenda or took credit for the hard work that God is doing in you. The message and not the messenger is what transforms. With that said, looking at our text this morning, Jonah's sermon that he preaches to the Ninevites is by no means a home run. Uh, it's, it's relatively bad. All he says is, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no, there's no prescription, there's no solution. But we can see very clear here that it's the message and not the messenger that transforms and causes the Ninevites to repent. The message given by God here is not stopped by the reluctance and the faithlessness of the messenger. And so this morning in chapter 3, there are three things that I want to explore with you, three ideas that will guide our time, our time together. First is a new beginning. Second an unlikely response, and third, a merciful God. A new beginning, an unlikely response, and a merciful God. So we'll start with a new beginning. We just read all of this book together, but if you go back into chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then you look ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see very similar language in the way that, uh, in the way that, that these two verses on either end are laid out. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The book of Jonah is what we would call, a, from a literary perspective, is a two-panel story. And we've explored this a little bit together already. That chapter 1 corresponds with chapter 3, chapter 2 corresponds with chapter 4, and the events unfold in a similar fashion. And so, right at the beginning of each of those panels, right at the beginning of the first section, we could call it, or the second section, beginning in chapter 3, we see the, the language mirroring it itself nearly identically. The author chooses that identical language because the story is starting over. Chapter 3 represents the story starting over. It's a fresh start that's given to Jonah. Again, chapter 1 corresponding with chapter 3. In both of these instances, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah flees in chapter 1, and then we're given a, a new course of action for Jonah. He obeys, in a sense, he obeys the word of the Lord and actually now goes to Nineveh in chapter 3. Jonah goes to the sea in chapter 1, and in chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. 
But remember from our earlier study in this book that the sea oftentimes represents Gentile nations. Nineveh is a Gentile, it's a non-Jewish nation. And so Jonah going to the sea and Jonah going to Nineveh are the same in a literary sense. Jonah preaches in chapter 1 and he preaches again in chapter 3. To the sailors in chapter 1, Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. He's telling them something that's true about who God is. In chapter 3, he preaches, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah's message brings about repentance in both chapters, in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. In chapter 1, we learn that the, the sailors repent. And in chapter 3, the Ninevites repent from the greatest to the least. Jonah meets a big fish in chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1. God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And in chapter 3, the sermon that he preaches, the word that he calls out against Nineveh, uh, makes its way to the Ninevite king. And remember that sea monsters, we talked about this last week, sea monsters are like great fish and that represent, or like the great fish, represent kings of Gentile nations. And so the king of Nineveh is like a great fish or a monster that lives in the sea, in the Gentile nation. So you can see how the author, hopefully you're beginning to see how the author crafts this book, again, to show us uh, an, an important truth. The author wants us to realize when we get to chapter 3, that Jonah is getting a fresh start. That he's getting a new beginning. Now, what Jonah does with this fresh start is something altogether different, and we'll see a lot of that and explore that next week in chapter four, because Jonah isn't exactly Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, he, when, when Scrooge is confronted at the end of his life's trajectory, when he sees the future and that he will die alone and be forgotten because of his miserly ways. Um, he flips a switch and he becomes uh, a, a, and repents, really, turns away from his miserly ways and becomes a generous and gracious towards others. Jonah doesn't exactly flip the switch like Scrooge does, and that's a larger biblical worldview that we can explore together next week. Uh, he's, he's still got a pretty substantial attitude issue when we get to chapter 4, and we'll, like I said, we'll explore that later. But God, for our purposes this morning, at the beginning of chapter 3, God gives Jonah a new beginning. And Jonah's first step in is, is now in accordance, in chapter 3, is in accordance with the word of the Lord instead of opposed to it in chapter 1. He steps away from God in chapter 1, and in chapter 3, he steps towards God and his purpose for him. Brothers and sisters, maybe you're here this morning and you've been on the run. Maybe you have been on the run, like Jonah was in chapter 1. Jonah's story extends a continual call all the way through these four chapters to you to stop running. Because here's the good news for us, that God is merciful and patient. God is merciful and patient. Turn to him and obey his word. That's what we learned here right at the beginning from the fresh start that Jonah is given in chapter 3. It's God's kindness that allowed you to reach a point where you realize that you have been on the run from him. This can be true if you are a believer, if you've been joined to Christ by faith. It can be true if you've never professed faith even once in your life. 
Many men and women profess faith and then find themselves in dramatic seasons of their lives where they're on the run from God's word, where they are refusing to submit to it, where they're refusing to obey it. Similarly, uh, men and women who have never professed Christ oftentimes are rejecting Christ because of the sin or because of the very things that God commands them, things that they cannot, in their own strength, accept. So it's God's kindness. Whenever we realize that we've been on the run from God, it's God's kindness to us uh, to show us that reality. The question is, how have you you been refusing to submit and obey God's word? Now this becomes a little more granular. It becomes a little more applicable for everyone in this room. You may feel like, I haven't been really running. I haven't been running away from God. But you can say, there are certain areas where I really struggle. God has told me to obey in a particular way uh, through his word, and I really, really struggle. I would rather ignore it or try to justify opposite behavior. No doubt you remember the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son. This is a, probably the most popular parable A man's young son demands an inheritance from his father. And so when he receives the inheritance from his father, he runs off to a far country. He squanders his money on frivolity. The young man hits rock bottom, living with pigs, the lowest of the low, not that dissimilar from Jonah in the belly of a fish. And he decided to go back home and plead with his father for mercy. The father runs to meet him. The father runs to meet him in an unexpected manner. Jesus tells us that the young man turned towards home. And in Luke 15, 20 through 24, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and killed it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the picture of a merciful God. A merciful God who welcomes people who have been on the run for years or decades. He welcomes them into his family. No questions asked. Bringing them in. The repentance of the son is met with celebration and rejoicing. Not with, uh, you. well yeah, you're right, you really shouldn't have done that. That was a pretty stupid move. Rather, he clothes him. He puts shoes on his feet. He sacrifices and he rejoices. Here's the thing about the prodigal son, though. Because you may be here this morning, and I sense this is probably true for many of you in this room. I'm not on the run. I'm not resisting God's word and running from it. I'm doing pretty well when it comes to obeying God's word. But friends, Jesus was clear, even in this parable itself, 
that your self-righteous attitude about your own obedience is what your running looks like. The prodigal son's older brother might have been thinking exactly what you're thinking right now. Because the younger brother who squanders his inheritance and comes home and receives a celebration when he's received has an older brother who acts in a self-righteous manner. The older brother says, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is your attitude. You may be thinking to yourself, look at all these wicked people around me. I've obeyed and yet they've been rewarded. Look at all of these people who have, who have ignored God's word and I have upheld it. And yet, and yet here I am, still in the same position as I was before. I've been faithful. They've been faithless. Look at me. But if this is your attitude, then you fled also from the word of the Lord. If this is your attitude, you've also fled from the word of the Lord. You've trusted your actions. You've trusted your own good works to make you right with God. And you've acted entitled. You've acted as if God owes you something because of your obedience. You've acted as if God is in your debt because of something that you've done. Friends, this is running from God's word. Because God's word is clear. He owes you nothing. He is not and never will be in your debt. God is never, is not and never will be in your debt. You say, like, I've served the church faithfully for decades. I've raised my kids to fear the Lord. I've, I've walked into situations and helped my community in ways that can't even be measured. But God, is not in your debt. Why? Chapter 2, verse 9. Last phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is not in your debt because of things done. Because He alone can save. You cannot save yourself through your obedience, through your good works. So you're running like Jonah, might look like blatant disregard for God's word. And so the call to you is to turn back to God and obey his word. But for some of you this morning, and I fear that this is the one that we tend to fall into, your running may be cleverly masked as self-serving and self-reliant. Your running might look like Self-reliant, false obedience. You're too ready and willing to appeal to things that you've done as the grounds of your salvation. But no one here, no one here is saved by obedience to God's word. The call is to turn back to God and to fall on his mercy, recognizing that your self-righteous attitude is leading you further and further and further away from God. A new beginning is offered you even now. Jonah ran, blatantly disregarding God's word, and a new beginning was offered him at the beginning of chapter 3 because of who God is. Not because of anything that Jonah did, not because he prayed his prayer in chapter 2, but because God is merciful and God is patient. 
God is patient and merciful with you too. No matter where you stand, a new beginning, whether you're running in self-righteousness or whether you're running, refusing God's word, a new beginning is offered you right now. But that leads us then to a second idea that we see in these verses. And this is an unlikely response. An unlikely response. And I'm, of course, referring to the Ninevites and their unlikely repentance. In chapter 1, again, we saw the sailors repent of their, their, in their desperation. Jonah tells them in the midst of a deadly storm about the one true God, and the sailors then repent. But I want to say to you this, this seems a little expected in chapter 1. That all of this stuff is going on around them, all of these uh, deadly things, the sea beneath them, the skies above them, are all threatening to kill them. They recognize the danger that they're in because it's visible, because they can see it. The, the deadly storm and the sea that could easily pull them under and drown them and shipwreck them was seen uh, very clearly with their eyes, perceived by the senses. So they repent. The mindset of the sailors seemed to be that there is no way out. We've got to find whose God can take care of this problem for us. And the one true God shows up. And God, don't, don't get me wrong, God often uses these types of situations in our lives to draw us to repentance. Again, hitting rock bottom. Being, perceiving with our senses physically that there is no way out except to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. These moments are like nowhere left to turn repentance. We see this in the New Testament, say in the book of Acts with the Philippian jailer. The earth is shaken and the, and the disciples who are imprisoned are, are freed. And the jailer says, what do I have to do to be saved? Because he knows that if these guys get out, his job and his life are in jeopardy. And so, this is a nowhere, like the sailors here in Jonah, is a nowhere left to turn repentance. It doesn't make it less genuine. It is truly genuine in this story. It's the story, again, for so many of us. Many of you had nowhere else to turn, and you've never looked back following Jesus from that point where there was nothing else that you could possibly, possibly do. But now in chapter 3, we see, an un, I would say, an unlikely repentance in the Ninevites. Because there is no perceived physical threat on their lives. In fact, it's the exact opposite. There is no perceived physical threat on the Ninevites' life. This repentance seems far less likely than that of the sailors for, for a couple of reasons. First, the Ninevites may have heard of the one true God, the Hebrew God, or maybe they hadn't. The unknown foreign prophet walks into their city and the message gets to them to turn to this man's God, a God, again, that they may or may not, probably had not ever heard of. But this is the point that seems to make this the most unlikely. Is that while the sailors, again, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a ship, a seriously life and death threatening circumstance repented, the Ninevites were comfortably at home in their capital city when the message of repentance comes to them. They're comfortably at home 
in their capital city. And we learn that this city is really, really large. Like this Nineveh is a feat of human ingenuity. This is a city that Jonah walks three days into. Or no, he walks a day's journey into its three days in breadth. So Jonah walks a full day into the city and he's only got one third into it. And then he calls out against it from that point. It would take you three days to walk across it. One day for Jonah calls out for repentance. Consider if someone walked into like New York City, right into the heart of Manhattan and started calling out what Jonah says. You got 40 days and New York City shall be overthrown. I think most people would say, like, what is this wacko doing? That's my human initial response. What is this guy doing? What is he thinking? That's what I would expect the people of Manhattan to say if, if an individual did what Jonah did here in Nineveh. Because when you're in the midst of a city, a great city, you can appeal to all that man has done. Look at all that man has done here. Look at the amazing stuff that we've achieved. Do you see what we've built? We are pretty great. I think that this is, we can hold up against your God. Not only is Nineveh a big city, but again, the people are at home. A place of safety. A place of security. A place of comfort. When people get comfortable and feel safe, they are less likely to rethink their lives. When people get comfortable and feel safe, when they feel secure, and when they feel genuinely at home, they are less likely to rethink their lives. Why disrupt what's already working just fine for us? Friends, this is true of many of us, especially in the culture that we live in. We pursue comfort at all costs, and it is one of our society's biggest idols. We don't want to be challenged. We want to be catered to. We want to mitigate pain. We don't like to feel discomfort on any front of our lives. Endless products are marketed to us under the heading that it will make you more comfortable in every sense of the word. And when you're comfortable, when you're feeling good about yourself and your circumstances and things around you, you become far less likely to see your sin. When you are comfortable, when you feel safe, when you feel secure, when you're feeling good about yourself and things around you, you become far less likely to see your sin. You will become desensitized to conviction of sin. Why would I need to make a change? My life is going pretty well. But the men and women, boys and girls, who were part of Nineveh, who lived in Nineveh, who were comfortably at home in Nineveh, were in opposition and rebellion to the one true God. But even despite their comfort, even despite their security and their safety, they repented. These factors, I think, make this repentance nothing short of miraculous. Only God, only God, through these simple words that Jonah makes, this bad sermon that he preaches in one day's journey into Nineveh, only God could bring them through those words to repentance. We should not think that Jonah did a great job. We should think that God is great. 
What reasons did the Ninevites have to repent? Very few. Just one that I can see from the text because we're told in verse 5, they believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Why would they repent? Because they believed God. That leads us then to a final point this morning. A merciful God. We have an unlikely response then that shows us clearly a merciful God. Because God shows mercy to the Ninevites. When they are called to repentance, they repent. Jonah's message makes it all the way to the king. And the king imposes serious measures for the city. He takes the sin of the people and the message of repentance incredibly seriously. And you can see that by the actions that he takes. He rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Symbols of mourning and of repentance. He issues a proclamation and published through Nineveh. And he says, decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call up mightily to God. The king proclaims that this is what should happen in Nineveh. And not just the greatest, not just the people at the top, but the people at the bottom and even their livestock. Everything is to repent. Everyone is to call out to God. Let everyone, this is the key in verse 8, he says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. And then God relents of the disaster. We're told right at the end in verses 9 and 10 that God relents from his disaster, the disaster that he said he would do to them. Now the word relent is a word that's been disputed for a long time because what is it what does that actually mean does god change his mind here can god change his mind did the repentance of the ninevites strong arm god into giving them a second chance the answer is no and no but that's not even really the question that the text is asking or trying to communicate to us what the scriptures here care to teach us is that god is merciful that god is merciful that when sinners Rebels, those who have resisted God's word and refused to obey God's word, when they genuinely repent, God doesn't flip a coin and say, live or die. When sinners genuinely repent, God is always merciful. He's merciful in the call to repentance. Again, there was, no, there was nothing that made God send this message of repentance to, to Nineveh. He's merciful in the call to repentance, and he's gracious in bringing about repentance in the hearts of men. And he always, without exception, those who genuinely repent, he always receives them with open arms like the father welcomes the son in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. No one in the history of the world has turned from their sin and turned to the one true and living God and God has said, no, I reject you. Never. Genuine repentance always results in God's mercy being shown. 
I'm going to ask you a question here. Uh, Buffalo City Church, this is for us. Do you long to see this kind of repentance that's on display here in, in Nineveh, in the third chapter of Jonah? Do you long to see this kind of repentance in our city? I fear that we're far too indifferent to a notion like this, a miraculous repentance that only can be the work of God. The kind of repentance that only can be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance that sweeps across our city because God decides that it will. We're far too inclined to withhold calling others to repentance because we think there are too many negative forces at work. Because they're too resistant or because they love their sin too much or because I really know that person and it would take a miracle for God for God to bring them to Christ. And so what I'm going to do is just withhold my call altogether. What if we actually believed that God could take the hardest heart and soften it? What if we actually believed that God takes dead people and makes them alive? What if we, what if we didn't think that we knew better than God knows? What if we didn't think that we knew people better, the person at work or the person in your family? What if we didn't think that we knew those people better than God knows them? What if we didn't think that we knew them better, that God knows them, and in faith simply called them to turn from their sin and to trust Jesus? The people of our community here in Jamestown may not know, just like the people of Nineveh, they may not know the God who we serve. The one true and living God who we worship here this morning, they may not know him. They may have some idea about who he is from, from, a, from, a, from an individual in their past or because they had a season where they, they looked at the Bible or because they, they just have intersection points with people who trust Jesus. We may not, but, but they may not know the God that we're talking about here in the scriptures. Many people in our town have made so many things up about God that it would make your head spin. If you've had conversations with people, they believe things to be true about God that cannot be located anywhere in scripture and in sometimes are in exact opposition to what scripture teaches us about who God is. The people in our community in Jamestown may be experiencing rock-bottom situations like the sailors were experiencing rock-bottom situations. And some of them, though, are like the Ninevites. They're desensitized with all of the comforts that they've grown accustomed to. All the comforts and security and safety that the world has to offer. Both need the message of the gospel proclaimed to them loud and clear. A message of repentance Turn from your sin and a message of hope. Turn to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Church, it is the calling placed on every man, woman, boy, and girl who has trusted Jesus Christ in this place to speak the truth of the gospel to every single person that we come in contact with. Every single one of you here has interactions with unbelievers every day. If it's the teller at your bank or if it's the, the, the checkout person at the grocery store. 
if it's your server at a restaurant this afternoon, or if, it, if it's your coworker, or if it's your son or daughter, or if it is your parent, every single person has regular interactions with unbelievers. And many of us in this space, myself included, have faithlessly approached those relationships saying they're so far gone. I know this person better than God does, and God couldn't do what God only God can do. The church, we, friends, have lost our way in thinking that taking the gospel to our community means that we have to conjure some response or provoke some response in people. But this is not what we see in Jonah. Jonah did not preach a good sermon, but it is the message, not the messenger, that transforms. And we have lost our way. The church has lost its way in thinking that taking the gospel to the community means programming something, some kind of external outreach or an event that the church puts on. But this is not the case. We're called to proclaim Christ to unbelievers. We are called to say, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. The only way to have that separation bridged is through the only way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. There is not, not one individual who has not trusted Jesus who, does, who, who doesn't need to hear that message. Every single person needs to hear that message. We're called to proclaim Christ to unbelievers we are already engaged within this community. And then we pray that God does his work. His work. You say, I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer objections that people bring up that may or may not be your job. It should never be an excuse to say, this person may object in this way and I don't know how to deal with that so I'm not going to say anything. Repent and believe. That's the message of the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Jonah preached a bad sermon in the city of Nineveh and all of the city of Nineveh from the king all the way to the cattle repented. It wasn't because Jonah did a good job. It wasn't. It was because God chose to grant repentance. And we must believe, friends, friends, we must believe that God can do the same in our community. That leads us to a conclusion this morning. Just a couple of thoughts that I want to give to you as you prepare to go today. In the New Testament, Jesus has a run-in with the religious leadership and Jonah, of all people, comes up. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly, or was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' Jesus's words here indicate that there were, where a sign is demanded by the religious leadership here, none will be given. It's God's word that leads to repentance. Jesus, God's word in the flesh, stood before these men, 
the scribes and the Pharisees, and they demanded that he, they, he perform for them like a circus act. And so Jesus says that the sign that he will give to them is his resurrection. He says the sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus three days in the heart of the earth. And just like the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out of the dry land, so Jesus would come out of the grave. He would not be held in the in the heart of the earth, but he would walk out. And then in verse 41 in Matthew 12, Jesus says something striking. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What does he mean by this? What does Jesus mean by this? Jesus is saying that Nineveh repented this godless place who may or may not have ever heard of the one true God repented at the preaching of Jonah. Nineveh Nineveh repented at the word of the Lord, but the generation that Jesus came to would resist the word of the Lord. They would hear clearly the message of salvation, see the person of Jesus Christ who ushered in this salvation for them. They would see how it all worked Oh, it all plays out before them, even down to the resurrection, and they would still resist it. Something greater than Jonah has arrived on the scene. Friends, you this morning have heard the truth of the gospel. You have heard the reality that Jesus Christ came into the world and lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you deserved, so that for all who are joined to him by faith might have eternal life. You've heard me say those words. You've, heard, you've seen it proclaimed in the, in, the, in the ordinance of baptism this morning. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Do not resist God's word this morning for you. Do not risk because you see how it all unfolds. The men of Nineveh, the women of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, all from the king to the cattle, didn't know how this all worked. We, friends, know how it all comes together. It all comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, the beauty of this, the beauty of the full revelation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the beauty of this is seen in the reality that the message of the gospel isn't just a message of repentance. It is not just a message of turning from sin. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. The message of the gospel is turning from sin, but not just turning from it, but turning to something. Turning to Christ. Jesus says, That something greater than Jonah is here. He says something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ himself is greater than Jonah. Why? Because Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to turn from sin and turn to God. You can't stop sinning no matter how hard you try on your own. You, You can't. If you don't turn to Jesus, just stopping sinning 
Just being a better person can't achieve anything for you. But through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, you can turn turn to Christ in faith and have right relationship with God restored. It's not just turning away, it's turning towards. Both are seen in the gospel. And this is why, again, Christian baptism that we celebrated earlier helps us understand. Repentance is necessary, but it is only but it is only when we are raised to walk in newness of life that we can truly be free from sin and obey. If you've tried to be free from sin in your own strength, you're in jeopardy of just turning back right into it. But if you turn from sin and turn to Christ, then you are truly free. Jonah's message was a message of repentance. Jesus' message is of freedom. Something greater than Jonah is here. And again, friends, the call to you this morning is to see that Jesus is greater. A message not simply of repentance, but of a message of freedom and hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the mercy that you've displayed to us. The mercy in the display in, that you've displayed to us in the call to repent. But God, as we go from here, we recognize that if we turn from our sin in our own strength, we are bound to turn right back into it. God, so would you, through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, cause us to turn to Christ and to him alone. May we not trust in our obedience. May we not trust in anything other than Jesus to be saved. Take, God, what we have heard this morning and stir in us a desire. A desire to approach you daily in humility, seeking to know you more, so that through you we may be free. God, we thank you for the short book of Jonah. God, we thank you for the truth that it gives to us. As a church, would you cause us to desire deeply to see the type of repentance that occurred in Nineveh to happen in our own community? A miraculous repentance that comes through the proclamation of the gospel by faithful men and women to those with whom they are in contact. God, would you do that in Jamestown, North Dakota? A great move of the gospel for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.